Welcome to JavaScript Jabber. Uh, this week, our panelists are Chris Beekler. Hello, this is Chris from closebrace.com and uh, greetings from sunny Providence, Rhode Island. And I am coming at you as usual from Nashville, Tennessee. And we have a guest that I'm excited to talk about because I or talk with because I know we've chatted in the past before and I'm a big fan of functional programming. But we have Ryan Lundsdorf. Hey. Yeah, no, it's just a moment of silence to see. Okay. Just make you feel. <laughs> Hi. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. You want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Oh, sure, yeah. Kind of yeah. what your experience is in, what your background is. Yeah. yeah so we, we've spoken before when I was on JS Air with the Kent yeah. C. Dodds. Yeah, that was and a long time ago, man. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I work at um, Salesforce now, but it's, it's interesting to me because like now it's flipped. And I moved from the other Salesforce building to the tower. It's so weird being in this tower in the center of San Francisco because it's like so like gaudy. But anyway, it's like when Mr. Burns tried to block out the sun in that one episode of uh, The Simpsons. I feel like I'm at the top of that. But yeah, so now I'm, I'm talking to you as a, as a panelist or a, like a, a guest. It's exciting. But yeah, the, oh, so yeah, me. I work at Salesforce and I wrote this book called Mostly Adequate Guide. And I've done some you know, classes on Egghead and front-end masters, mostly around functional programming. Uh, lately, I'm getting into AI and ML and all that fun stuff but still very deep into functional programming and and all that. So that's me. Awesome. I'm kind of curious. So I don't think I was really introduced to functional programming until like one or two years into my career. At what point in your career did you get introduced to it? That's a good question. So I started out uh, programming. I was on that Ruby train, you know, DHH showed up and was like, did you hear the good news? And then like I jumped on and we all made a blog. And we made everything like we make blogs. But it was interesting because um, I was doing, I got more and more into object-oriented. I started to realize that what was significantly improving my skill set was not learning, you know, really slick algorithms because they're useful when you need them. But most of the time, it's just, you know, trying to create a reasonable program. So working on the paradigm was what really leveled me up. So I got so deep into OO. I actually, you know, right around the time Sandy Metz was talking a lot in the Ruby community about, you know, a lot of the like just questioning object-oriented practices, trying to take them to the next level. And I was, you know, trying to write a book on object-oriented programming <laughs> myself. I was all like super into it. But then like, you know, five or six years of that later, I was just like, I, I just felt like functional was something I needed to explore to be able to make a reasonable choice. And it actually turns out um, it took about three to five years, um, probably because there wasn't very much material. It was like 2010 when I started getting into it. And it took a very long time for me to be able to say like, oh, I know what's going on now. And uh, I can actually make a reasonable judgment. I've made a bunch of programs and I know which, which thing I like, you know, in what case. And 
so yeah, it took quite a while to get into it, like halfway through my career. <laughs> That's really good to hear you say because I know when I got into it, like it seemed like it was a little bit of like the new hotness, but I don't really like to make decisions based on what's exciting and what's like, I don't know, what's like the new hotness. I want to make decisions based on what I think is going to be best for the code base. Like what I do in my day-to-day job, like that's the thinking I want to go with. What I do on my own, like is what I do on my own and I'll just do whatever is interesting to me. But it's good to hear you say that because I know, you know, you spend a lot of time in this, but knowing that I'm, you know, when I read your stuff, I'm learning from someone who kind of knows when to use which tool for the job. That makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very wise. And I agree <laughs> with, with everything you're saying there, um, <laughs> except for the fact that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of where I want to go with my next question, but I guess like, I'm also curious because I spoke last year this is a small conference. It's kind of more of a local conference in Knoxville, Tennessee called Lambda Squared. And I did a talk on like functional programming for beginners. And like, I feel like that should be more of a popular thing because I think the sooner you can be introduced to some of these concepts, because traditionally people like enter into programming and they learn object oriented first. I think having an idea of both concepts is going to make you a stronger developer. And, you know, like we're on a podcast that we're talking about JavaScript and JavaScript's not like a purely functional language. So knowing how to use both and when to use both, like the sooner you have that knowledge, the better. Do you agree? And do you think there's like a certain point in someone's career where they should be exposed to this? I think you're hitting on something very important and that's um, a lot of people want to jump right onto functional programming and it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to learn and it's very different and it's not very pervasive in the industry as far as like people going all the way with it. It's mainly like, you know, everybody writes their apps in the industry with object oriented code or procedural code or some kind of mix, mix of those. And if you don't know that you're going to have a really hard time. And if you come in from a functional angle, you know, trying to introduce, you know, whatever natural transformations and monads and transformers and uh, everybody's going to be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and then you get, you know, the teams that are adopting that and, and they're having success with it. But it's, you know, it's, it's definitely like, I would say you should do object oriented and then learn functional once you're questioning uh, some ideas and want to see an alternative uh, and how that plays out. But, you know, it is quite an investment to be able to take a step back and be like, oh, I see. Like, this is why I would want to do this now, <laughs> you know. So anyway, but definitely uh, agree with your start. Start with OO and, and, and then work your way into the FP if you, if you so choose. So I'm curious to, you know, sort of take a step back. Uh, if we can talk a little bit about the basic uh, t- fundamental tenets of functional programming and maybe how they differ from object-oriented programming. So one of the big differences here is that functional is, is all functions, meaning that they're pure, uh, I hate that word, pure functions. They're mathematical functions, which mean that they always have to, you know, they're total in that they can't, you know, take some input and not actually know how to give you an output. So they always have to give you the same output for the same input. And, you know, they're, so they're like reliable, they're portable, they're not relying on state um, or anything that could ever change the output given the same input. 
And so with that in mind, you can kind of work within this mathematical uh, world that you've created for yourself. You say, uh, well, I'm only going to use a subset of programming that models mathematical functions. And then I can do all this cool math stuff, which I hate math myself. Like I, <laughs> like, but there is uh, abstract algebra is, is, is basically programming. And after you get past the Greek and the, and the noise, it becomes this really beautiful way to express certain things and, and everything kind of composes together. So you kind of make this choice to not use a lot of the features in order to be able to compose very simple, understandable mathematical style programs versus, you know, uh, I have to remember that we're making these changes and writing these files and doing all these mutations. And, you know, you kind of put these constraints on yourself and then you end up with with a very um, clear program at the end. So I hope that like kind of experience, you know, I guess that one of the bigger differences too here is that object oriented, you, you make objects and you put your data in that ob- in those objects and with functional you're like well what do i do with all this data it's just kind of sitting here <laughs> and i have to like pass it to every function that sounds really annoying that's definitely an area of curiosity for me is how if you, <laughs> if you need to manage state in some way how do you do that in a functional environment yeah and, or and how in general you manipulate data right well the the thing is that functional programming is is different in that you recognize that there's there's always kind of like one uh, process in your program that either gathers data from you know user input or a database or you know anywhere files HTTP and so you just you you get some data and you put it through your program and on the other end you know you have a value whether that's new HTML for the screen or something to put out the console or you know you want to just pass that data along to something else. And once you see everything in that that view, like sure, there's several different inputs and different ways to to run little sub programs within my program, but mainly it just takes data from point A to point B. And so you don't end up having to pass anything through because your whole program is a function. It just takes that data as input and returns it back out. And so when you have to manage state, what you can do is while that program runs, you have this kind of secondary uh, slot, I guess you would call it. And you basically say, and you know, I'm, I'm specifically referring to the, you know, either reader monad or state monad or, you know, environment co-monad. There's all these different ways to do it. But you basically say, while my program runs, I'll also have this, this secondary you know, data slot that holds some state that I can either only access or I can read and write to. And it's kind of weird to think of it, but if you think of it as an array um, where your program runs in the first position and in the second position is, is the state, then, you know, uh, you can actually control access to, you know, getting that state from within your program because they're both like kind of in this data structure together. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a lot there. You can also use a closure. <laughs> I'd kind of like to talk about using functional programming and object-oriented programming together because, I don't know, I think like with JavaScript, that's what, I don't know, that's kind of, it sounds weird, but that's kind of the style that I like. And when I say that, I mean, there was a talk that a mentor sent to me a long time ago which was basically about like 
pushing all of the side effects to like one part of the application and trying to keep the rest as pure as possible. I wish I could find a link to the talk, but yeah, yeah the imperative show. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yep. and maybe um, I brought that up a long time ago. Do you have any experience with that? Would you be like willing to yeah. that for a little bit? So when you're writing when you're writing functions or programs with promises, you're doing monadic style functional programming. So like, and you can see it. You you end up creating this kind of like jungle gym for your data to flow through. <laughs> you know. Like I would say like, you know, 20% of your app is really the composition of promises and your functions flowing through those promises or data flowing through the promises and those uh, functions kind of embedded. And that's very much how you write, you know, do functional architecture. You, you, it's not just promises. You kind of capture other effects um, within there that could be impure, like throwing errors. Although I guess promises capture that. You can just like you can embed promises in an object-oriented program. You can you know do the same with any any monads, and you know dot composition is exactly the same as you know currying and composition in the point-free Ramda style. I actually you know very much prefer dot composition in my JavaScript programs, although you know some of the, my writing in the past has tried to teach how to read Haskell and other much more like you know functional composed languages because you can kind of mimic that in JavaScript. But in any case, uh, yeah, you can certainly write it in the middle of an object-oriented app. And, and the same way you push your effects to the edge of the program with a functional, um, I, guess, I guess the way promises are eager, it kind of messes that up. But if you use a lazy promise or an event stream like RF, RxJS, what happens is your whole program simply builds up that computation and it returns outside of the program and then you just call run on it, and it'll run the, the program. So instead of actually running all these effects while you build the program, you simply you know compose this big structure and then return the thing to run later. So I, I'm coming late to the game here. AJ O'Neill, just joining in now. Promises yep. are eager what? <laughs> Good question. So when you call you know new promise, it will just start running. Like the promise constructor... Or like, it just goes, right? And you don't have to call dot run on it to actually run the promise. And so event streams, though, sometimes, um, you know, most libraries do this where you don't actually, you know, as you create an event stream, it just starts spitting out events. You actually have to subscribe, which kind of turns it on or lets it, you know, run. And so the difference in a practical man- matter is that if you're composing a bunch of promises and they're just starting to run left and right as you're composing them, then you know that that becomes uh, less powerful for kind of this dynamic post-processing that you can do to say, well, if I have a promise that's going to call another promise, you know, over here, like I I want to I want to build up a structure and maybe make some choices about how that happens. Maybe I actually, you know, have an array of promises and instead of, you know, running each of them, I want to return one promise with an array of results. Um, so that gives you, you know, basically promise at all. But the, the interesting thing there is that if you make everything lazy, you end up, you know, getting these performance benefits, but you also get the fact that there's no actual effects happening in your program. It returns you a program to run outside your program, which... It seems like a like a hack, like you're cheating, 
but what it, it buys you is is that your whole program can be reasoned about and um you know this will then get that and this will do that but it doesn't do it and so i can actually change the order and things like that so it's, it's interesting to to like flip from eager to lazy and a lot of category theory provides kind of a toolkit for doing just that so i i miss something because when i run my promises i called out then and they don't run until the then happens well if i said I could try this in my in my browser. I could be I could be wrong about this, but if I just create a new promise, yeah, when you um, construct a promise, it absolutely runs. But yes. like when I chain a promise, the char- the promise doesn't happen until it reaches the chain. I miss I miss something. I'm coming in late. I'm coming in stupid here. No, um, no, no. I think that's it's no. You're you're right. Like each then happens in a sequence. But the the way if you were to use a, a lazy promise is each then wouldn't actually, it would maintain the sequence, but the original constructor never ran. So you'd have to have a second step to say, okay, now kick off this whole thing. Well, um, I'd have like a function that's called run, and then I'd call that function, and it would execute the whole chain until the end. Exactly. And then if somebody else had a big promise composition, you could say, oh, hey, you know, since I haven't run it yet, why don't we, you know, compose it with that other thing? And so you end up kind of having more composition a compositionality um, by not just eagerly running things. And that's not to say promises are bad or anything. Like um, it's probably kind of annoying to have the extra run step everywhere, but in the functional mindset that really kind of buys you purity, as they say, which means, you know, you've, you can, you can think about it as this structure that you can start to, to manipulate because it's, it's a program instruction set at that point, not actually a running program. So circling back to when I brought this up, which was like the functional core imperative shell, Mm -hmm. let's kind of like try to kind of like unpack that a little bit more. I know for me, when I do this, that means like, like these async calls and stuff like that, that I'm doing, I'm going to try to keep all of that in one area of the code base and then extract out like as much logic from like when those promises resolve or fail and all of that logic and any like DOM manipulation, any of that stuff that I need to do, I'm going to try to extract as much of that as possible into pure functions. Right. Yes. That's, <laughs> that is kind of the, the whole idea of the, the, the thing. I missed that part. <laughs> you know, the more of your app that you can move into that space of just pure input to output, you can, you know, m- make a much more reasonable, testable, easy app. And Redux does this, right? It's like, exactly functional you know shell imperative whatever no functional core imperative shell that's it there we go so the you know you you fire off an instruction with the data and later on you interpret that in a reducer and a lot of this is you know along those same lines where you can end up having these nice uh semantics that you're creating these instruction sets essentially and then you're actually interpreting them later and that interpretation is where you actually run you know, effects and things. I think I guess Redux is kind of a bad example because you're not supposed to have side effects in your reducers, but it's it's the same idea, like fire off an instruction with some data and then, you know, outside of all this nice, clean, just data processing functions, that's where you actually run the, run the instruction. Awesome. So, yeah, I'm all for that. And I think those are kind of things, like for people who are newer to this, you don't have to go all in. You can do yeah. it bit by bit. Probably, you know, we're like halfway into the podcast by now, but 
it's been forever since we did a podcast on functional programming. So we probably should back way, way up. And like when I talk about JavaScript not being like a purely functional language, we should probably back super up and say what is purely functional and why JavaScript isn't. Sure. Yeah. Do you want me to take that or somebody else? Yeah, by all means. It's... All right. Yeah. No, basically, um, you know, JavaScript allows you to write files and make calls and kind of do whatever you want to do and make changes to like imperative mutations to, you know, memory spots in place, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, and what you'll find with a, you know, a functional language that prevents you from doing any of that, like you can't actually change data. You have to make a copy of it. And, you know, you can't just go out and write a file. You have to do this whole kind of instruction set. So then later outside of your functional, pure functional program, something else, some other process actually goes and gets the file and then passes it in. You can kind of choose where and when to apply this um, kind of constrained world. And then, you know, in JavaScript, whereas in other languages, they enforce that. One of the cool things about the languages that enforce that is you have all these guarantees. You just know nobody can, can do that. You know, I know that if I have a function that takes this input and returns me that output, I can guarantee that it'll always do that and it'll never do anything else. Um, so I, I don't have to worry about it, you know, firing off stuff to some like spam server or like you know, <laughs> downloading things, doing whatever it's going to do. Um, I can just, you know, take it at face value and know exactly uh, what's going to happen. But, you know, in JavaScript, we don't, we don't have that luxury, but we also have the choice. <laughs> I had a long conversation with uh, Getify about this, with Kyle Simpson about this, about how it gets down to, like, political beliefs. Like, do you want this, like, totalitarian, like, dictatorship thing where you're, like, in this language where you can't do anything wrong? Or do you want to, like, you know, total anarchy, like JavaScript, where you're just, like, left to your own devices? And maybe it's, like, gets down to, like, just a preference at that point, like, how much quote-unquote, freedom do you want versus kind of guardrails? Well, that's one of the useful things about JavaScript is that you can impose as much structure as you or your team personally prefer by having it be able to be object-oriented, but also it, it seems pretty amenable to, to functional programming concepts. It's not that hard to get started with it. Yeah, the, the, the things you need, the ingredients you need for functional programming is first-class functions, closures, and it, you know, it has both of those things and, you know, you can, it's, it's pretty much putty. You can really make, that's the interesting thing about JavaScript. So the thing that keeps me coming back is the fact that like, you can be a C++ programmer, pick up JavaScript and make it look exactly like C++. And you can do the same thing with Haskell. <laughs> it's like, it could be, it looks like two very different languages depending on who is using it because you can really shape it however you want. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat 
at Century.io. So I'm curious also if there are trade-offs or negatives that you've found when working with functional programming, things that are either frustrating or that you try to avoid or that sort of gotchas that you run into. Certainly. Anything you can speak of there? Yeah. Well, from a team process standpoint, you know, you really need to have everybody on board or else. Um, and, and I mean, like, at least with, since it's an agreement in JavaScript, you know, to follow these rules, you know, you really need buy-in from the people writing it. It's kind of like TDD. If you have one person on your team that's just not writing tests and then you run your test suite and stuff breaks despite that because somebody's just not writing tests. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's the kind of the same idea. You know, you have to have everybody trying to uh, work within this framework or not, you know. And, and I think, you know, just for instance, like you can capture an asynchronous workflow uh, where let's say you have an object graph and you have objects where each you know, node in the graph, for instance, is, is updating itself based on the state of the other nodes in the graph. And there's this really complex asynchronous you know, computing sequential processes thing going on. And you can model that beautifully with lattices in you know, abstract, abstract algebra if you define two functions, just how they combine, a meet and a join. It kind of abstracts over intersection and union. And if somebody goes through and just like, does something impure in their function or, you know, doesn't follow those rules, like all of a sudden all this math doesn't work. But it's a very simple, beautiful solution if we all followed the rules, right? So it's not something people do often because they don't want to be constrained by this. But if you, if you are, you end up with very um, simple data flow and, and very cool tools to, at your tool belt. So that's one trade-off is just having the team buy in and you have to really like, you know, have everybody try hard to follow that. The second thing is, um, if you look at promises, you get a very good sense of what's going on in a functional programming where, or in a fu- functional program where you, you separate your composition of your side effects from your actual functionality. And that means, you know, if I have a promise and I'm, I'm doing dot then, dot then, dot then, dot then, and I have this big application of, um, you know, this will be asynchron- asynchronous and then we're going to do that and then it's going to go here you know, most of your, you've kind of separated the fact that you're composing this workflow from the actual things that are happening. So you've, you've kind of teased out the effect from, the, from the, the functionality. And a lot of these programs end up being effect container juggling. So if we go back to that state monad, where it's kind of like a pair of your actual value running through your program and this extra little state that I can access if I need to. And what happens is if I have to do effects in there and all of a sudden I have the state container with my value in it, but that value is now like a promise. Okay. Now I have to somehow compose the promise within the state. And um, this kind of cascades out, you know, if I have to do error handling and all sorts of things where half my program is simply shuffling around effect containers and then you, you you still have all your functions you can use all those functions again and again they don't really know about oh i'm asynchronous in this context okay that's fine or you know there's an error somewhere or there's extra state the functions end up being very reusable but on the other hand you have this big like mountain of container effect composition I feel like I'm being really abstract there. And the best thing I can latch on to for a, a normal program is, programmer is, is promise chaining. But you can also kind of maybe think of Rx, perhaps uh, on all the combinators in, you know, in there. 
Um, there's just a lot of composition maintenance. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> I feel like I may have talked too abstractly. If there's any, any specific questions you can ask, I'm happy to talk about it as, you know, in as details. So one of the things you've mentioned a few times, and this is, I, I'm coming from a very non-math, non-computer science background, uh, you know, sure. self-taught. So you've used the term monad several times. <laughs> right. I, I know I'm opening a huge can of worms asking this, but is there a decent way to, to quickly describe what that means? Uh, a brief search seems to indicate that it's a pretty complicated term, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So it's actually very, very simple, but it's, it's like two clicks above and that's where things get really confusing. So it's an interface. It's a programming interface. So um, like an iterable or a thenable or whatever you want to call that. So monad just gives you flattenable. So if I have an array and I'm going to map over that array and get a bunch of, you know, let's say I have a, um, a DOM, you know, DOM process where I go through every element and I get all its children. I can end up with a big array of arrays, you know, query selector all, get me everything's children. And we have a flatten method and that flatten method will flatten the array uh, into one. And that's exactly what monads do. Um, if I have this kind of container or box, it's just a data type. So in JavaScript, you can implement this with an object. So you can say, well, I have this, you know, class called like error. And, um, you know, it, it works just like a promise or just like, you know, an array where I can map over the error to actually run functions on the thing inside of it. So let's say I have like, you know, hello, Brian string inside my error. I can actually like uppercase it by just mapping over it. But what happens is you end up with errors inside of errors. Like you end up with this kind of like nested structure. And so if you can have a, if you have a flatten method on it, it'll just flatten into one error. And that turns out to be very powerful because what it does is it captures sequence of events by virtue of nesting. So with promises, you can say, well, I have a promise and a promise and a promise and a promise. Promises kind of auto-flatten whenever you call dot then, but they capture the same idea of like, I'm going to do this, then this, then this, and um, just kind of having this kind of nested doll, uh, like Matryoshka structure, <laughs> it'll capture the sequence of events that way. So yeah, it's an interface with a flatten method, essentially. We tend to call flat map um, because you want to flatten while you run something on it, which equates to being about then, uh, dot then in a promise or you know, flat map over a stream or you know, first map, then flatten on an array. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about you know, the differences between object-oriented programming and we've talked a little bit about sort of how functional works. You had mentioned that uh, there are some common questions that you get. Yeah. Anything you want to cover there? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I might have actually touched on a couple of them already. But yeah, the, the questions I had when I first started doing functional programming or try to do like these functional architecture things, people learn, you know, what monads are and they learn, you know, how to do comp composition and currying and, and they get into monoids and applicatives and all these cool, fancy things. But fundamentally, like, uh, there's been this gap where people don't really know how to put together a functional program just because they're so used to seeing object-oriented programs where each file corresponds to a class and you put your data in that class and there you go. Um, you know, and then you have your 
your like controllers and your views or whatever, <laughs> you know. And so if you think about it functionally, I, I tend to get a lot of questions around just how do you how do you model an app that way? And really all you do is you take your methods outside of your objects and you just call your object a, a module instead of an object. And so I can, you know, make a, a file called like user.js. And instead of it being a user class that has a constructor that takes data, it's just a collection of functions that would work on my user data type. And I also export, you know, just the user data type, which is usually typically just a, a plain old JavaScript object, but it's a little helpful constructor to make sure I always have the same, same fields. So you just kind of have a pair of a type and a bunch of functions that work on that type instead of putting it together in this kind of stateful mass. So actually putting putting those things um, in the in an app that way buys you a lot of freedom in how you group things because typically you'll find that the methods inside your classes are not actually specific to the noun which you're working on. You just you happen to put it there because that's what op- data it operated on, but it could work on any data if you just rename the data. So for instance, if I have a user who has full name and it just concats the first name with the last name, that's, that's just concat. And if I just put, you know, if I actually separate my, um, well, it's concat with a space, right? And so if I just put that into a, a module called user.js, eventually I'm, I'm like, oh, wait, I'll call this like utils join with space because it's not just for users, it's, you know, for anything. Like if I just want to concat some words with the space in between it. And um, that happens again and again until you realize that like most of your functions and types are not specific to the app you're working on. And you get a lot of, get a lot of reuse out of that. And just separately too with the objects, just the comments on that is well, oftentimes you'll end up with objects. You, you, make, you have to make this choice. Um, am I going to create an object like a, a data fetcher object, or do I just call fetch? Do I make an object that's like, you know, my whatever, let's say I get a, a list of comments from the server. Do I come back with a comments object that knows how to like sort and reorder those comments? Or do I, you know, or deal with those comments, show me the top five? Or do I just treat it like an array that already has sort and order and, you know, tick five or whatever, you know? So like, you have to make a choice when you want to bundle functionality with data structures and object-oriented. Whereas with functional, you just keep them separate and you typically end up making the choice of, do I make this a, like a concrete data type in my application or just use an array or object? So it seems like you know, dry concepts, don't repeat yourself, is one of the ways in which people can sort of make their way into functional programming because like you're saying, you're, you're pulling a lot of these methods out of the objects so that they can be reused and that they have generally speaking, a very simple and, and distinct return value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People now get a kind of a, like a knee-jerk reaction. They're like, oh, dry? No, no, don't be dry. Because, you know, I've gotten into trouble being dry before, like overly dry. <laughs> right. And uh, there should be a name for that, like like uh, whatever, you're dehydrated or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically what happens is, you if well just to comment on dry is dry is is you know i like the rule of three if you do something three times then you have an actual abstraction the the problem when people say don't repeat yourself almost always if they're against it it's because it's a premature abstraction to try to make two different things act like one thing 
And I was just about to say that that happens yeah. so much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and so when that happens, it just, you know, you end up with this, like, if you're working with the math stuff, you end up with something, a, a very different guiding light for your abstractions that really dodges almost all those bullets that make people kind of against abstraction because you end up with a contract always. You always have a contract for using things and that contract is centered around composition. So with addition, you have a contract that you'll always add two things and return the new thing that's of the same domain. Like you don't add two numbers and get a string, right? Well, maybe not JavaScript, you get one string. Anyway, you have this contract of how, how it works. I know addition is associative. I know it commutes. I know it can do all these things. And that kind of happens with all your functions. So as you abstract, if you don't have those contracts um, and they can't build on each other the same way math does because you're genuinely using math, then it all kind of gets too abstract and falls down. But um, these, these properties end up kind of being maintained and, and composed within themselves so you can really um, reason about your program at a very high level even though, you know, just by virtue of everything having a contract. But yeah, I just wanted to comment that uh, out there because it's a very big reason to do what, to, to try this out. Cool. Sort of slightly switching gears before we jump to picks. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you are getting into AI and machine learning, which I think are absolutely fascinating fields. Curious what work you've been doing in there. Is, is that a part of your f- sort of functional programming exploration? Does it help in those areas? Well, actually, um, some of the worst just code I've ever seen in general <laughs> is, uh, you know, you'll open up a Jupyter Notebook in Python and it'll just be like mountains of, you know, random lines. Um, and it's not that in global state and whatnot, but it's that, you know, it's, it's not that it's the program that's hard. It's, it's the, you know, trying to understand uh, correlations between things and what has signal and getting your data as clean as possible and, you know, choosing the right models. And, but uh, I'm finding it very useful in that area because typically you need to set up a pipeline and, if, and you get into a lot of trouble real fast if you're trying to make an AI or ML program and you don't have a nice pipeline from you know gathering data to cleaning data to very much ensuring that your data is exactly what you expect and doesn't have anything weird in there and you're working with a lot of data, one little thing that goes wrong can change everything. So being able to write a nice functional program to pipe data through is what it's really good at. You just you know take input and return output. So you know, and you can compose all these little like filters and partitions and whatnot. So there's, there's a, it's a, it really goes hand in hand. And, and I'm seeing that a lot of the AI ML stuff is not so much about the predictions you sprinkle through your application. It's about the, the piping around it and how you get the data from here to there and make it all clean and nice. And then you incorporate a little prediction within this big application. And, um, yeah, it's been a it's been a lot of fun. It's been eye opening. I've been able to kind of get more into math this way, um, and there's it's it's cool to s- switch your thinking from, like for instance, in functional programming, uh, one of the principles is like don't throw away data. You're going to be piping data from point A to point you know point B. It's going to go through all these functions, and if you throw away data halfway through, like you can't get it back. <laughs> so uh, instead of filtering, you partition. So you say, you know, and then you'll have this kind of grouping of things coming through your app. So, you know, uh, these are all the things that passed the filters. These are all the things that didn't, but I didn't lose them. And so it's good for debugging. And it's good for passing data around. 
And uh, where I was, I was trying to remember where I was even going with this. <laughs> um, it's just the, the math of it is, is, is kind of helpful in working with distance functions, thresholds, like just understanding that if you go through these, these non-lossy approaches and functional, it, it kind of corresponds to what you would do in the same, same ideas with like matching up vectors and trying to do thresholds and orderings and AI because it's all probabilities and not actually like, this is your answer. So yeah, cool. fun stuff. Yeah. Cool. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm just talking in circles around. I'm not really like, I just started this year, um, like earlier this year and I've been fascinated by logic programming and, and also, you know, just good, good old classic ML, not, not too much deep learning. I've played with Keras quite a bit, but, um, in any case, it's, it's been a lot of, it's just a totally different world. Very scary for the first like three months. <laughs> I'm sure. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say let's uh, make our way to picks. Yep. I agree. Real quick, where's a good place for people who are interested in learning more about functional programming to, to get started? You said you had uh, some courses available and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I did this pretty a while ago. So if you're interested in the point-free Curry Compose stuff, I did a class for front-end masters called, you know, Hardcore Functional Programming in JavaScript. It's supposed to be like hardcore because, you know, it's like taking it all the way past like what you would normally see. Kind of regret the name. Anyway, I was going to do a V2 of that in a couple of weeks here. Basically, um, you can start there if you're interested in that approach or I have an Egghead series that does more of a dot syntax um, Scala approach, which I kind of highly recommend, you know, in your day-to-day application but I'm also doing an architecture class for functional uh, for front end masters, so um, they kind of they're going to do a two day kind of hand in hand thing. Cool, and people can find you online at at yeah. Dr. Boolean on Twitter. Yeah, that's me, Dr. Boolean. Um, I make YouTube videos. I have these like stop motion hedgehog things out there, and I've got a little YouTube channel also under Dr. Boolean. <laughs> awesome. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. All right. I think uh, definitely we should move to picks. Uh, Amy, do you want to go first? Sure. I'm going to go with a music pick this week, which I've been doing a lot of lately. So the band is After the Burial. It's like another metal, not really programming music, but good workout music. So that's going to be my pick for this week. Uh, Chris, you want to go next? Sure. My pick for this week is it's been sort of making the rounds, but I think it's really cool. Uh, Somebody has 
started the process of porting Minecraft to JavaScript, specifically a guy named Ian Huang. So I am really intrigued by the possibility of JavaScript as a, as a game programming language. I think there's a lot more work to be done there, but there's a lot that already exists. So I'm just kind of calling attention to this because I think the more people who are aware of it, the more they want to hack on it. You know, there's still features that need to be built out, but there's a lot of stuff already working. It's at uh, github.com slash ian13456 slash mc.js. And you can look in the show notes for a link. But definitely check it out if you're into graphics programming with JavaScript. I think it's a really cool, really cool project. Awesome. Brian, you want to go next? Sure. Oh, boy, I didn't have like any anything prepared. Um, but I will say there was this amazing talk uh, Chris Penner did on Comonads. Um, and it's it's been a, a you know historically difficult subject to get started with because nobody had any great examples of how to use Comonads in day-to-day. So I recommend checking out Chris Penner's Comonads videos if you're into Haskell. I don't know. I think that's it. That's all I got. That's great. AJ, is your uh, fire alarm going off or can you do a pick? So it's going to go off any second, hopefully, <laughs> you know, right now. My pick is the fire alarm. Yeah, fire <laughs> alarm! Okay, so I'm going to pick two things. Always a music pick. Like, I don't, when's the last time I didn't have a music pick? So, crazy little thing called love. You know, that great Elvis song? No, no. Relax. No, no. Da, da, da. It's by Queen. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, so um, also for anybody that's been using Greenlock, I've got a campaign to get V3 out. So self-serving pick, but um, if it's helped you, if it's saved you time, I would love your contribution. I think this might even be out in time for that to, to be effectual. And uh, I'll get off since the fire alarms are not being tested. All right. <laughs> I love it. Pew, pew, pew. That's uh puts a real time limit on the picks there. <laughs> I guess that is it for this week. And thank you, Brian. Thanks to the panelists. We'll see y'all next week. All right. Thanks. thanks. Great chatting. Bye. Thanks all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.